Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. On the night of May 20th, 2016, Nicole Vanderheiden went out on the town in Green Bay, Wisconsin, with her boyfriend, Doug Dietrich. It would be the last night Nicole was seen alive. There's surveillance video of her inside the bar as well as outside. I and mean, it's at that point where she gets up and uh, exits the patio and is last seen leaving uh, towards the west. The next day, the body of the 31-year-old mother of three was found by a farmer, left in a field just three miles from her home. Park County 911, what is the address of your emergency? We just found a human body laying in the Okay. okay. This week on Killer Cases. We have an explosive new trial for you out of Wisconsin. This is the most brutal murder that has ever been committed by one person in the history of Brown County. Doug murdered Nicole in a fit of jealousy and anger fueled by insecurity, alcohol, and numerous other drugs. You knew all along what happened to Nikki. No, I did not. All Nikki wanted was a ride home. A ride home. Back to her baby. For Vault Studios and the Law and Crime Network, I'm Brian Ross. This is Killer Cases, the podcast. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Green Bay, Wisconsin, May 20th, 2016. It was a warm spring night, and the action was at a place called The Watering Hole. It's a friendly atmosphere, but it's, it's really large. A lot of people can fit inside. Somewhere among the hundreds of people was a young woman who would not live to see the dawn of the next day. Her name was Nicole Vanderheiden, Nikki. And according to WBAY-TV reporter Brittany Schmidt, Nikki was at the concert with her live-in boyfriend, Doug Dietrich. And they were kind of looking forward to a night out, and it started off really well from what we know. But both of them were drinking heavily, police would later say, especially Nikki. Plus, she was breastfeeding. She had a young son, so her tolerance probably wasn't what it used to be. When the concert ended, Nikki and friends headed to another bar, the Sardine Can, with Doug saying he would catch up shortly. Sergeant Brian Slinger with the Brown County Sheriff's Department would eventually serve as a lead detective on the case. There's surveillance video of her inside the bar as well as outside. She can be seen on the video dancing, having a good time. But there's no sign of Doug ever showing up at the sardine can. And we know that there were text messages between her and Doug accusing him of staying behind, maybe talking to other women. Nicole was starting to get irritated and upset with Doug because here she is with all of Doug's friends 
and she doesn't know them very well. Nikki sends more texts to Doug. She's clearly upset, and the messages are harsh, accusatory. And her boyfriend, who she wanted to spend the night with, is not there. Eventually, they move outside to uh, an outside patio area, and it's at that point where she gets up and uh, exits the patio and is last seen leaving uh, towards the west. A friend tried to stop her and confront her, but just couldn't get her to stop or listen, and she just kind of kept walking down the road. What happened the following day would not soon be forgotten in Green Bay. Brown County 911, what is the address for your emergency? We just found a human body laying in some Okay, person beyond help, or do I need to give instructions for CPR? No, it's beyond help. It's starting to decay. Is it a male or female? Uh, It's got long hair, uh, but I didn't go near it. You couldn't even tell who it was. Her face was completely black and blue. She had more than 240 injuries from what had happened. The only articles of clothing that were left on her body was a sock on each foot, uh, and then there was like a pink, pinkish-colored uh, bracelet that you'd get from like an event uh, on one of her wrists. Three hours later, another call came in to 911. Brown County Public Safety, this is Therese. Yes, um, how do I go about, uh, I guess, the uh, missing person? This time, it was Nikki's boyfriend, Doug. Okay, and who who's missing? Uh, it's my girlfriend, and she she does live with me, and she's never done this before. What's her name? Nicole Vanderheiden. And what's your name? Doug Dietrich. Now, Sergeant Brian Slinger had a likely name for the victim and for a possible suspect. They had already found the body, and here they have someone calling saying that they can't find their girlfriend. Obviously, there were some things that were concerning to us. Um, You know, why did you wait so long to make this phone call, especially when you have a newborn baby at the house uh, that needs mother's attention? Um, So it kind of painted a picture that maybe Doug had done this. An officer was dispatched to Doug Dietrich's home. I'm here for a missing persons report. We used a audio video recording device uh, to record it so that we could get a look at him. You know, we focused on his hands. We focused on the general condition of his body, uh, focused on the condition of his house, his behaviors. During the visit, Dietrich was not told about the discovery of a body just three miles away. Do you suspect any foul play? If so, why? Just, I don't know. I, I don't suspect it, but this area she walked in, I don't know. Definitely don't like. Okay. His story was he went to bed, uh, woke up once or twice through the night to use the bathroom and to take care of the baby, and uh, woke up the next morning, you know, 10, 11 o'clock, somewhere in there, and she still wasn't home. Dietrich had not called in the missing person report until 4 in the afternoon. I'd be lying if I said we weren't alarmed with his level of concern. The level of concern did not seem to match what it should be, I guess. So that night, detectives got a warrant to search the home Doug and Nikki shared. Brown County Circuit Judge John Sikowski would become very familiar with the case in coming months. It's probably the first person you look to, the boyfriend, the fact that there was a falling out that night. Mr. Dietrich obviously was a person of interest right away. Dietrich was brought to the sheriff's office for what would be a grueling three-hour late-night interrogation. Stretching? Yeah. All right. During the interrogation, detectives Brian Slinger and Lee Kingston pressed Dietrich on why he waited so long to call in the missing persons report. I wasn't feeling good all day. I was hungover and 
feeling like shit and then not wondering if I was thinking she went off with another guy, whatever, all this shit going through my mind. After about two hours, the detectives finally tell Dietrich about the body found in a nearby field. I don't think it's been 100% identified as her, but there's a lot of similarities. What do you mean a lot of similarities? There's a physical description, height, uh, blonde, belly button ring. Gauging Dietrich's reaction, the detectives get a little more direct with their questioning. And you don't know where she is or what happened to her? Not a clue. You, did you do anything to cause her to go missing? No, not, not at all. Besides uh, being an asshole a bit on the phone. Now the detectives raise the stakes even further, telling Dietrich they want the clothes he was wearing that night when he was out with Nikki and that they are already searching his house for evidence. Is there anything in your, when they go search your house, is they're going to find anything, anything in their house they're going to find that's going to, that's going to say you had anything? And absolutely nothing whatsoever. Okay. Nothing. Nothing to do with this. I mean, <laughs> for the next half hour, as the detectives look on, Doug Dietrich sobs almost uncontrollably at one point saying he is scared. What the detectives are trying to sort out is whether these are the tears of a grieving boyfriend or the tears of someone who has been caught. Throughout the spring of 2016, Green Bay was reeling from the news of a killer in their community. Many people said, how can such a brutal crime take place in Green Bay, Wisconsin? How can somebody commit such a random act uh, in our community? It was very scary. I mean, can't think of anything worse, a, a random attack like that. By all accounts, she was a very good teacher and she was an excellent mother, a smiler, somebody who they said would light up a room. Nikki Vanderheiden was a mother of three, two from a previous marriage, and the third, six-month-old Dylan, with her live-in boyfriend, Doug Dietrich. She really cared about her kids and would never have done anything to put them in harm's way or in jeopardy or to leave them alone. According to Brown County Sheriff's Department Sergeant Brian Slinger, one of the first big breaks in their investigation came when two joggers called after a morning run. We were out jogging that morning at about 5, 5.30, and we had to jump over a pool of blood in the road. And if you look close on the right-hand side, you can see where the blood and stuff is. Then a neighbor found more grisly evidence on his lawn, including a wire cord he had run over with his lawnmower. That's absolutely where the murder took place. The, the blood that was collected there, um, the hair samples, and then that cord uh, that was found, which we believe is like a phone charging cord, came back all positive with uh, Nicole Vanderheiden's blood DNA. And then detectives began to hear more about Nikki's relationship with Doug from friends and relatives. She's been very depressed lately. Why is she been depressed? Because of Doug. Nikki's sister, Heather Meyer, 
told police that Doug drank heavily and used cocaine. And then my mom said that two weeks ago, she told him, her, that he has been beating her. She asked, has she ever hit you? She said, yeah. And my mom said, you need to come with me, you're going to go meet mom. And she didn't. One of Doug's ex-girlfriends, Rebecca Mott, came forward to tell detectives how Doug could be jealous to the point of violence. We got in a fight, tackled me, and I broke my ankle. He would, um, you know, throw stuff, break stuff, but I mean, I would too. And now the search warrant at Nikki and Doug's shared home began to produce evidence. Nicole had some significant prints on her back that appeared to be a, a shoe which is like a herringbone pattern that's common on the bottom of uh, Air Jordan or Nike Jordan shoes. Uh, we located a pair of shoes in, in Mr. Dietrich's garage that had that similar pattern on them uh, that also had some red staining, red drops on the bottom of them that we figured was consistent with blood. Inside Nikki's car, parked in the garage, was what appeared to be blood splatter, blood drops on the back seat. We were pretty confident at that time that um, that Doug was responsible. Our theory at the time was that somehow Nicole got home, there was a disturbance or some sort of disagreement out in the street or in the driveway, and then the theory was that Doug used her vehicle, which was in the garage, to transport the body. At 7.03 p.m., attempting contact with Doug Dietrich. What's the address? Less than 72 hours after Nikki's body had been discovered, Detective Brian Slinger showed up at the house to arrest Doug Dietrich for murder. We'll talk down there and I'll kind of explain to you what's going on. He was pretty, I mean, he was emotional. He had had the chance to speak to a family attorney uh, prior to his arrest, so there was no interview after his arrest. He was just transported to the, to the jail. Doug Dietrich's arrest sent another shockwave through Green Bay. He comes from a pretty well-off family here in the area. He had a pretty good life, and so people just thought he was kind of, you know, a rich kid, kind of getting away with what he wanted. Not satisfied with Dietrich's account of that fateful night, detectives spoke with one of his friends who was with him, Greg Matthew. Because I'm going to tell you that there's no doubt in anybody's mind that the evidence shows that your friend, Doug, had involvement in her murder. There's no doubt about it, okay? Detectives specifically asked Matthew about the window of time before Dietrich's babysitter, Dallas, said Dietrich returned home. Who can vouch for you for the 60 minutes before you showed up and made contact with Dallas? Who can vouch you for that? One hour. I'm asking for a one-hour period of time. Who can vouch for where you were if your phone is dead? Thank you, guys. So nobody. That's your alibi? I... Nobody. That's your alibi. Your alibi is the guy that's supposed to be for murder. But as detectives continued to focus on Doug Dietrich, the case was about to take another dramatic turn. All because of something they spotted on the body cam video of Doug Dietrich after he first reported Nikki missing. Breaking news on the case of the Brown County woman whose body was found in a farm field. 16 days after his arrest, Doug Dietrich was released from jail. People were really shocked and were like, what are police doing? How can they let a murderer go when we know 
where we thought we knew that he was the one that did it. But behind the scenes, lead investigator Brian Slinger says the case against Dietrich had completely fallen apart. A lot of what changed was we were getting evidence back from the crime lab. There's a lack of physical evidence tying Doug to her body, to her clothing. The blood on Doug's Air Jordan shoes was not Nikki Vanderheiden's blood. It came from a turkey. Who would have known he would have went turkey hunting a week or two prior and there'd be turkey blood in the garage. The blood found in Nikki's car wasn't hers, but that of her daughter. And the vehicle could not have been used to move the body as police first theorized. We're able to find out that that car did not move that entire weekend. And there was something else, something detectives noticed when reviewing body camera footage. We went back and looked at the videos, and we had noticed that Mr. Dietrich was wearing his Fitbit the day that we interviewed him at the house when he called in the missing person. We started thinking about, can we get the data off that Fitbit to show, was he moving around that night? The device was turned over to crime technician Tyler Bailing. Fitbit is an activity tracker that you wear on your wrist, similar to a watch or a bracelet. There was a a short amount of steps recorded in the middle of the night, consistent with, you know, someone getting up to use the bathroom in the middle of the night. Uh, And then after that, there was another period where there was no movement recorded from the Fitbit. Doug Dietrich's Fitbit confirmed his alibi. And there, there was no way he would have gotten up in the middle of the night, went out into the front yard, committed a brutal murder, drove couple miles away, and then came back home. Slinger was forced to conclude that he had arrested the wrong person. He missed the funeral. He missed certain things. He was, he was painted as this. And I think, you know, anyone would be lying or if they said they didn't feel slightly bad about it. Local TV news reporter Brittany Schmidt recalls hearing about Doug Dietrich's release and how the news impacted the community. Okay, well then, who do they think did this? Is this person still out there? Are they in the community? I think it was pretty scary for people living in that area, too, to realize that, okay, if Doug didn't do it, who did and where is this person? Investigators now needed to find whoever crossed paths with Nikki Vanderheiden after she walked away from that bar in Green Bay. But they were starting from square one. We reenacted it numerous times. We walked the path, and she kind of walked off into darkness. And, and that's kind of where we were at. It would be another two months before they could move the case forward. Got a call from the crime lab telling me that they were able to get enough DNA off of one of the socks, of all things, from her body uh, to enter it into the CODIS system. The CODIS system is a nationwide registry of DNA collected by the FBI. And they got a hit from the state of Virginia uh, for George Stephen Birch. George Birch had been arrested in 1997 in Virginia and charged with murder, but was acquitted at trial. He had multiple other criminal convictions in the past, however, and in 2016 was on probation for a grand larceny case, requiring him to stay in Virginia. You know, I'm thinking, is this a transient? Is this a a truck driver that may have been in the area for the weekend? Um... How how is someone from Virginia's DNA showing up in in Green Bay? What the investigators did not know was that George Birch had been living in Green Bay for some three months in the home of Linda and Edward Jackson. I met him a long time ago back in upstate New York. Him and his wife were separating, and he knew I was doing very well out here, so he asked me if he could come out and get a fresh start. He was extremely polite. He called me Miss Linda, and I kind of like that. Just very personable, very, very personable. 
Birch was a regular at a bar three blocks away from the Jackson home, a place called Richard Cranium's. He was so fun-loving, you know. Everybody at um, Richard Cranium's called him Big Country, and he was six foot eight, tall guy, but very friendly. He was always, I guess you'd say, very charming towards the girls. He had no problem with walking up to any girl and just talking with them and striking up a conversation. The Jacksons say they had no idea the man staying in their home was being sought in connection to the Nikki Vanderheiden murder investigation. In fact, Ed Jackson and George Birch had gone fishing the very day her body was discovered. Oh, he was real happy. He had a big smile on his face and holding it up. And um, that picture actually played a big part in it also because... Uh, when you focus in on it and you look at his right hand, you can see the cuts on his knuckles. Detectives only learned that Birch was in Green Bay from a seemingly unconnected traffic accident. We had no contact with him with the sheriff's department. Um, however, Green Bay Police Department did have one contact with him from right around that time frame. It was from a minor hit and run involving a Chevy Blazer that belonged to the Jacksons. When the vehicle was found, the front seat had been set on fire. And at that point, the Jacksons called in for a stolen vehicle. And the last person to use that vehicle was George Birch. And he said that, oh, I must have left the keys in the car. Somebody must have stolen it. George Birch's name was in the police department database, along with his Green Bay address. So I jumped in my car and ran out to that house. And there he is, standing on the porch smoking a cigarette. Not only was Birch easy to find, but to clear his name in the hit-and-run investigation, Birch had also given his cell phone to the police. It basically mapped out his night and gave us a lot of the answers that we needed to have. GPS data from the phone showed Birch spent most of the night at his favorite bar, Richard Cranium's, where detectives believe he met Nikki Vanderheiden. She was just looking for a ride home, and... Then he ended up bringing her home and sexually assaulting her in front of her residence. She's inside of a vehicle, um, fell out the, the passenger side onto the ground, which is where he proceeded to um, curb stomp her or stomp her head into the ground, stomp her back into the ground, which is how the footprints would have got, shoe prints would have gotten on her back. And then the phone moved and went directly from Nicole's residence to the scene where the body was located. So his phone showed him at every single crime scene location and basically mapped out that night for us. Authorities were sure they finally had the person who had taken Nikki off the quiet streets of Green Bay and killed her. Breaking news out of Green Bay today, 38-year-old George Birch was arrested this morning for the murder of Nicole Vanderheiden. Investigators say Birch has been tied to the scene of the crime with forensic evidence. George Birch seemed to be unfazed, showing little emotion once he was in custody. At 6 foot 8, 270 pounds, towering over Detective Brian Slinger as his handcuffs were removed. George, Steve. I told him that he was under the arrest for the murder of Nicole Vanderheiden, and I wanted to speak to him about that. His face didn't change one bit. Okay, so is this something that you want to talk to me about? I'm sorry? About that? You don't want to talk to me about that? So if I read your Miranda rights, you don't, you don't want to talk to me? So I for a lawyer. Okay. But once at trial, George Birch would have plenty to say offering a version of the night that would raise a lot of questions for the jury. George, did you murder Nicole Vanderheiden? No, sir. Definitely not. Do you know who did? 
Doug Dietrich. We have an explosive new trial for you out of Wisconsin. It's taken the nation and all media outlets by storm. In 2018, 40-year-old George Birch goes on trial. Thank you for your patience, ladies and gentlemen. But the lawyers for George Birch want to turn the tables on the prosecution. The defense came out swinging. We're going to show you how horrible Douglas Dietrich is. Defense attorney Scott Stebbins tells the jury it was Nikki's boyfriend, Doug Dietrich, not George Birch, who had the motive to kill her, as investigators had first believed. Doug murdered Nicole in a fit of jealousy and anger, fueled by insecurity, alcohol, and numerous other drugs. The evidence is going to show you Doug did this. At the very least, it's going to give you significant doubt about whether or not George did this. And so for two full days, Doug Dietrich is on the witness stand once again, having to defend himself. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? So help you that? I do. Prosecutor David Lassie has Dietrich go through what happened the night of the concert as the couple was drinking and dancing leading up to a dramatic moment. Doug, when was the last time that you personally saw Nikki alive? I was going to the bathroom to see you in 10 minutes, whatever, you know. And that's the last time I saw her. Did you have absolutely any involvement in Nikki's disappearance or death? Uh, no, I did not. Thank you. No further questions at this time. But the cross-examination of Doug Dietrich is aggressive. Defense attorney Lee Shukart begins with text messages Doug had sent to his mother before the night of Nikki's murder, saying he'd felt trapped by Nikki. I don't recall that ex- ex- that conversation. How about when you told her, I'm very seriously thinking about telling Nikki and the kids they have to move. I'm not cut out for this life one bit. Do you remember that? Um, I remember, you know, it. I think I sent something on the lines of that, and I was having a you know little downer day or whatever, and um, I just said that to my mom with not truly meaning it, I guess. Did you often say things you didn't mean to your mom? I mean, yeah, it's, sometimes I would, yeah. I mean, it is my mom. I'm very close to her, and... No. So since you're close to your mom, that means you lie to your mom? No, I don't say I would lie. I mean, maybe sometimes, but... Shukart then moves on to the text messages Nikki sent to Doug that night, and he questions Dietrich about the possibility of physical abuse in the relationship. Did you hurt Nikki that night? Uh, do you mean physically or what? I... No, I mean... Did you physically beat her in the past? No, I never physically beat Nikki. On day three of the trial, Doug is back on the stand, and the cross-examination turns to why he waited so long to call friends or family or police when he woke up early the next morning and Nikki wasn't there. Did you search for Nikki on foot or by vehicle? Uh, No, I did not. Still didn't call the police? I did not at that time, no. Because you knew you didn't have to? Defense attorney Lee Shukart then turns to when police arrived at Doug's home. And then you made sure that before police arrived, you took a shower. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I wasn't, I was feeling grubby and, you know, you wanted to needed to wake it. up and 
You wanted to hide any proof that you were involved in her murder, so you took a shower before the police came. And then a reminder from Shukart that police had at first believed Dietrich killed Nikki. They knew she was murdered 118 feet from your house. I don't know what they knew, what they knew at that point. You knew all along what happened to Nikki. No, I did not. That's when the Brown County Sheriff's Office arrested you and told you you were under arrest for the murder of Nicole Vanderheiden. Uh, that is correct. I have no further questions. The defense hopeful that it had planted seeds of doubt, would still have to find a way to deal with the overwhelming forensic evidence against George Birch, including his DNA on Nikki's sock and the GPS data pings on his phone showing his travels to and from the crime scene. The evidence that the state clearly presented was difficult to overcome that. On day seven of the trial, it's no surprise when George Birch's lawyers call him up to the stand. Birch is wearing a tie and seems to come across as a gentle giant. George Birch on the stand, sometimes he seemed likable. But sheriff's deputies are concerned that Birch is not such a gentle giant. Birch is wearing a stun belt underneath his clothes uh, so that it's controlled by remote control. They can, electric sh- they can provide an electric shock to him in case he acts out in the courtroom. Birch describes meeting Nikki at his regular hangout, Richard Cranium's. I was slurring. And how was she acting towards you? Same, somewhat the same, pretty much. Um, Sorting back and forth with each other. Birch testifies that they left together and ended up outside her house, where he claims they had sex in the back of his Chevy Blazer. Then, he says, someone attacked both him and Nikki. The, the next thing I remember um, was the, the person behind me had, had been saying... The first thing I was coherent to me that I could hear them say was, look what the f- you made me do. Did you know if she was alive or dead at that point? I didn't know if she was alive. Um, there was a lot of blood um, on her face, um, come out of her mouth, um, on her back. And again, at, at, at that point, did you know? who that individual was? Never seen him before in my life. Do you know who that individual is now? Now I do. Who was it? It was Doug Dietrich. Bert says Dietrich then ordered him at gunpoint to put Nikki's lifeless body in the Chevy Blazer and drop it in a nearby farm field. What was Dietrich doing at this point? He was standing behind me with the, 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 he still had the firearm in his hands, um, pretty much directing me what to do. Birch's testimony, if the jury believes it, would explain why his DNA was on Nikki's sock, as well as why his phone GPS data showed him at the crime scene and at the farm field. George, did you murder Nicole Vanderheiden? No, sir. Definitely not. Do you know who did? Doug Dietrich. The final day of the trial is televised live, locally and nationally. We're going to be covering the George Birch case today. There's a lot at stake with this story. So many twists and turns. People were so intrigued by it because they didn't think that this could happen in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Nikki's family, as well as Doug Dietrich and his family, are in the courtroom. Cross-examination. Prosecutor David Lassie cross-examines George Birch. What really happened was you drove Nicole home 20 miles away from where you lived 
fully expecting that you were going to have sex, right? That was your expectation. You were going to have sex. That's why you're driving her home, right? Um, I was hoping that we would. Um, it was leading from what had happened before and where we had spoken. It seemed like that's what was going to happen. And when you get there and it becomes clear that Nikki isn't going to have sex with you, when she attempts to go into her house and leave your vehicle, that's when your mood changes, right? No, sir. That's when things get aggressive, don't they? Not at all. That's when you grab that cord and strangle her, don't you? No, sir, not at all. That's when Nikki gets slammed on the ground repeatedly when she's trying to run toward her house, when those bloodstains lead in the direction back to her home. None of that is true. Well, how do you know? You were out cold when Nikki was assaulted. Because you said I did it. And the next day, you're going fishing with your buddy with a smile on your face and not a care in the world. Um, it was a pre-planned event, sir, and I wouldn't say not a care in the world. That would definitely would not be something I would say. No further questions. Another prosecutor, Mary Kerrigan Mares, then presents the state's closing argument, ridiculing the defense's case. Their explanation is ridiculous and it's insulting to your intelligence. He tries to make you believe this encounter was consensual as far as sexual activity. Killer is not enough. He seeks to defame her. Her life's gone, so let's go after her reputation. She's not here to counter these outrageous claims. That's very convenient for him. Nikki did not give up easily. She showed her spirit through the end. Nikki did not go gently into the night. We ask you to return a verdict of guilty for first-degree intentional homicide. Thank you. In his closing, George Burtz's lawyer, Lee Shukart, continues to point the finger at Doug Dietrich. Justice for Nicole is not going to be delivered by a wrongful conviction of George Birch. Just because of a story sounds ridiculous or sounds unbelievable doesn't mean it is. And I ask that you focus on all the evidence in this case, that you don't continuously ignore that the state arrested Doug Dietrich and there's a full-scale investigation into Doug Dietrich. We've seen the evidence. We've seen him testify. He had the motive, the opportunity, and the connection to this crime. He didn't call the police until after Nikki's body was found. He knew why. He didn't want the police to come. He was trying to cover up what he did. As we sit here right now, you are literally surrounded by doubt. You are surrounded by reasonable doubt. That's why you must return a verdict of not guilty. Both sides expect the jury will need several days to review all the evidence and conflicting testimony. They got the case this afternoon after closing arguments from both sides, and we're waiting to see exactly how long they're going to deliberate today. Very unusual dynamic in the sense that it's not just did this one do it, it's which of the two did it. But the jury is back after only three hours. The verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, George Stephen Birch, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide, is charged in the information. 
he just hung his head a little bit, but I don't remember him crying or showing much emotion. Jurors later tell reporters it had all come down to exhibit number 23, that piece of wire cord almost thrown away after being run over by a neighbor's lawnmower. They said that is what sealed the deal for them because Doug's DNA was not found on that wire, but Nicole Vanderheiden's was, and so was George Birch's. Following the verdict at Birch's sentencing, the court hears from Nikki's friends and family and from Doug Dietrich's mother, Diane. I have a hard time driving on Offman Road. The sight where Birch threw Nikki away like she didn't even matter. She did matter. We loved her and we miss her. All Nikki wanted from him was a ride home. A ride home. Back to Doug, back to her baby. In closing, please go home today. Hug your loved ones. Tell them you love them. Show them you love them. Nobody comes to court to speak for George Birch. And now, wearing his orange prison jumpsuit, he declines to speak for himself. You know, I just just a thought, Mr. Birch. He said, yes, sir, and no, sir. And the manly thing would have been to say, I did it, I flipped out, I did whatever. Cop will plea, do something. And step up to the plate. And he chose not to do that. And still haven't done that. Just before passing the sentence, the judge has one final comment for George Birch. Drop the body off in a field and then 12 hours later go on a boat and be smiling like nothing happened. Like you didn't have a care in the world. How can we explain that? That isn't human. That is not normal. This is the most brutal murder that has ever been committed by one person in the history of Brown County. That's how severe this case is. This is a crime that would, I believe, merit the death penalty, and for that, you have to die in prison. In Wisconsin, we have life without parole, and that was the maximum sentence that could be imposed, and, and that's what happened. Killer Cases, the podcast, is a production of the Law and Crime Network and Vault Studios. You can watch Killer Cases on the A&E Network and the True Crime Network. Refer to your local programming guide for full details. Brian Weiss, John Ford, and Will Johnson are executive producers with Vault Studios. Reed Redman and Will Johnson produced and edited the podcast. Killer Cases, the television series, is written and presented by me, Brian Ross, and produced and directed by Rhonda Schwartz. Executive producers are myself, Brian Ross, and Rhonda Schwartz with Ellsworth Productions, and Rachel Stockman and Dan Abrams with Law & Crime Productions. Also thanks to producers Sam Kelly and Jennifer Tinter, and editors Danny Hilton and Nick Teodori. Killer Cases is produced in partnership with Cineflex Rights and True Crime Network.